Good morning. Welcome to How to Find God in Tough Times. We're going to talk about pivot points. You ever notice that? There's turning points in life. Things pivot. There's these reversals and also things in your life are headed in this direction. Things in the game are headed in this direction. All of a sudden they turn it. Maybe it's in your career. It's your life or it's a relationship. Could even be in a sports game. You know, this divine reversal. Somebody please pray for a divine reversal for the Washington Capitals. I, my goodness. What is, what, is, what is going on? It seems like, uh, for those of you who are new to the city, I just want to, just for a few moments, just vent a little bit. Uh, it's like we've been under a curse ever since Jack Kent Cook uh, passed away. It's like no teams can win in the postseason. I happened to be on staff with a pastor who owned a funeral home. Uh, it's a little weird, I know, but he owned a funeral home, and one of his partners owned, like, one of the only crematories in the area, and apparently when Jack Kent Cook was sent to be cremated, his wife sent him in Dallas cowboy colors, and I think, okay, I think since that time, we've been under a curse here, okay? Uh, so divine reversal. We need a reversal for uh, the situation with the caps and everything else, but you need a reversal in your life. It seems to me that no matter what's going on, there's always people who are looking for a turning point, a pivot point in their life. I remember a couple years ago when the Falcons were playing the uh, Patriots, right, in the Super Bowl, you recall that? I, I texted a buddy of mine. He's in the room right now, so I won't look at him. And I texted him and said, he's a big Falcons fan. I said, you got to be so happy right now. I texted him that the half time. But we do this thing. We do this thing in the NFL. We call it a second half. And things got really ugly, right? They were going like this way as fast as they could for the Falcons in the second half. They went that way as hard as they could. It went from darkness to light, if you're a Patriots fan. All right. So here's the thing. When we, when you and I are going through something in our life, like we need something to turn around for our careers or something in our life or something in our relationships or in our marriage, whatever, whatever it might be, something, we want God to show up. We want God to show up and turn things around. And that is what we're talking about today. We're talking about a divine reversal because in the book of Esther, everything pivots on one moment, on one verse. One moment, one verse, everything flips. It goes from total darkness to total light. It doesn't go half darkness, half light. It goes total darkness, total light. Everything just flips upside down. I, 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 as I realized it, when I realized there's one verse in Esther where everything flips, I said, man, I got to get, I've got, what is that? I want to employ that in my own life because I would sure love for everything when I'm facing tough times to flip completely upside down. And as I talk to people, I hear that same sentiment in people's voices. I hear it in their heartbeat. Can this situation flip upside down for me? Can this situation at work, can this situation in my life, can this situation in my marriage or my home or my family, right? Can this situation turn upside down? This is what we're going to talk about today. So something that's very important as you're waiting on God in tough times it's so important that you understand some foundational things about God, that God has not forgotten you, that, that God is not taking his eye off of you, that God is still, that God is still with you. So I'm just going to give you a couple quick verses here that's so important for us to remind ourselves. It's kind of one of the reasons why we go to church, whether it's at West Falls Church or it's Grace Live or it's here in the room, because we're reminded of this story that God tells us over and over again. So here we go. Jeremiah 1.5, before I made you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Now you say, well, well he's talking to Jeremiah. Actually, in the Bible, 
This is indicative of how God is thinking and feeling about all of us. This isn't just Jeremiah. God knit all of us together, according to Scripture, in our mother's womb. Before I, before I even made you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I chose you for a special work. It means God has something special for you. He hasn't taken his eye off of you. He, hasn't, he didn't say, you know what, I don't have a plan for you. God has a plan for you. 1 Peter 2.9 says it this way. You are a chosen people. God has chosen you. You're going to get all kinds of contrary voices to that. You're going to hear all kinds of messages. You're going to say, no, God, maybe you, but not me. No, God has chosen you. And then look, look what it says at the end of that verse. Called you out of darkness into light. That's a reversal. That's a turning point. That's a pivot point. God wants to pivot our lives and take things that are dark and turn them into light. He wants to pivot us. 1 Corinthians 2.9, no eye has seen. No ear has heard. No mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. God has a plan. We can't even imagine how good it is. Psalm 138, the Lord will work out his plans for my life. Now, the Bible is very clear that there will be tough times. That doesn't mean that God is sending tough times to us. The world sends tons of tough times to us, right? But there's a clash of wills going on in this world. There's a clash of wills. That's why Jesus, in this famous prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Why are we praying for God's will to be done if it's always being done? Jesus is saying, pray that my will be done because my will isn't always done. And there's a lot of bad things that happen. And we'll see that here in the book of Esther. Something terrible is about ready to happen. There's going to be genocide. There's 15 million Jewish people living in the kingdom of Persia. And this wicked, evil guy called Haman, he's the villain. He's the bad guy in all this. He manipulates the king. He is so conniving, and he gets him, we're going we're gonna, we're gonna to kill all the Jewish people. So there's a terrible thing getting ready to happen, a terrible thing. That's not God's will. There's a clash. And so God is fighting against that darkness to bring about good. And in our lives, you've got to know this, that God is fighting. The big idea of Esther, everybody is that even when you don't think God is working, God is there. God is working. Even when you can't see it, like it doesn't appear to be God isn't anywhere, that God is there working behind the scenes in very subtle ways in whispers. What we said last week is major shift point in the Bible, 1 Kings chapter 19, major shift with Elijah. God says, Elijah, okay, we're going to go out the middle of nowhere to this cave. And this is, there's this huge earthquake. But then it says, God's not in an earthquake. Then there's fire. God's not in the fire. This is the way we expect God to show up. God shows up in fire. God shows up in earthquake. And then a wind comes and it just like throws boulders all over the place. It says, God's not in the boulder. Then there was a gentle whisper and God says, I'm in the whisper. I'm in the subtle, gentle whispers. And so we have an expectation that when God shows up in our life, it's going to be with fire. But God says, I'm not coming in fire. I'm going to come with a gentle, gentle whisper. And this is really important because if we're going to recognize God in tough times, we'd be better off looking for the gentle whisper than looking for the fire. Because a lot of times when God comes in the whisper, we, we dismiss that and we give ourselves credit for whatever's going on because we think, oh, God really didn't do anything. So it's an important thing. Esther is an incredibly unique book. It's actually, it's the most unique book in the entire Bible because God is never mentioned. God's name prayer, God, none of it. There's not even an angel that shows up in the book of Esther. It's totally, there's no other book in the entire Bible like the book of Esther. It is so unique. God is behind the scenes working in subtle ways. All kinds of coincidences are piling up over. And you could say one thing happens or two things happen, but when dozens and dozens of things happen, you've got to say something is behind all of this. So let's review it. The whole thing begins, God shows up when the whole thing starts, whole thing begins when the king gets drunk. Now right there is a problem. 
you'd say, no one's going to say, oh my gosh, did you see God at work today? The king got drunk. This is incredible. This is phenomenal. No, you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say that. But that's what kicks the whole thing off is the king gets drunk. And then he calls the queen, Queen Vashti, to come in and threw a, in, in front of a room of just hundreds and hundreds of drunk men from all over the city. She's like, I'm not coming in that room. And when she refuses, that's another coincidence that takes us down a certain path. And then this beauty contest goes out. Says, hey, let's, king, let's, because he, she loses her job. Vashti loses her job. Says, let's have a beauty contest. And let's bring all the young women in from the city. So the king says, that's a great idea. Right, I wish I would have thought of myself. So they have this huge beauty contest. And lo and behold, a young Jewish girl, probably in her late teens, is selected to be in the, her name is Esther. She comes in, comes in the contest, and she doesn't tell anybody she's Jewish. And right there, a lot of people have problems with Esther because there's another book in the Bible called Daniel. And Daniel, who was also a teenager, was also taken into another kingdom's palace who doesn't worship God, the God of the Bible. And he's like, goes in the palace, he says, hey, we want you to, you know, here's all this food. We're going to eat this food. This food's been sacrificed to all kinds of idols. He's like, I'm not going to eat that food. That's, I can't eat that food. I won't do that because of my relationship with God. And Esther's like... Pass the meat. Let's go. So she's submissive to everything. Everybody said, hey, you do this, do this. She's like, yep, whatever. She's totally submissive. Like she has the backbone of a noodle. Anybody and everything. People love Vashti. She stood up to the man. Like, I'm not doing that. You're like, there's the, there's the heroine of the story, Vashti. But I don't like, I don't like Esther because she's, she's not very faithful. She's like, whatever you say, I'll do it. That's what she does. Isn't it, isn't it awesome that the divine reversal that God is bringing for you and for me is not contingent on how faithful we are. Because I'm not always 100% faithful. I'm not, I'm not perfect. And I imagine none of us in this room are perfect. Thank goodness that even when we are not faithful, he is still faithful. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Well, it just so happens that this young Jewish girl who no, told nobody she's Jewish, she hid her identity, didn't let anybody know she's Jewish, she wins the contest, and she becomes queen. And it just so happens that her cousin, who was older than her, who took care of her because her parents had, had passed on, that he sits at the king's gate in some kind of official capacity. And somehow he counsels in the king in some official capacity. So he's here at the gate, and while he's sitting at the gate one day, he just so happens to overhear a conversation between two people who are plotting to kill King Xerxes. And it just so happens that he tells Esther, and it just so happens that Esther's able to get that message to the king. And it just so happens they investigate, and they find out that it's true. And so they kill these two people. They execute these two people. And it just so happens in a culture where you would never, ever do this, the king forgets to say thank you to her cousin Mordecai, which comes into play later on. It just so happens that the king's prime minister, his name is Haman, will learn that he is vile Haman. He is wicked Haman. It is the most extensive character study on pride that we have in the entire Bible. If you want to understand pride, go to the book of Esther and read about Haman because the Bible doesn't talk about anybody in as great detail as it does about Haman and his pride and how it leads to his death. And maybe it could save us from death too, but it's the most extensive character study that we have on pride in the entire, in the entire Bible. And so this guy is walking in and out of the gate and he sees more. Mordecai, and Mordecai refuses to bow. 
And even though Haman is number two in command, he has the king's robes, he has the king's ring, he has all the money, he has all the power, and everybody bows to him. There's one person who won't bow to him, and that drives him nuts. Because when you're a person of tremendous pride, enough is a never, never enough, right? You always got to have more. He's got to have more. And so he goes nuts. He says, you know what? I can't just kill Mordecai. I want to kill all of his people. I want to kill all 15 million Jewish people living in the kingdom of Persia, which is a mighty king. It's the most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth at the time. I got to kill them all. I just, I, I, I got to kill them all. So he concocts this whole scheme about it. he's going to kill them. And he totally manipulates the king. He goes in, doesn't say that they're Jewish people. He just says, hey, look, there's a group of people living in this land. And they don't, I mean, they're like subversive. They're a problem. Now, you're going to have to recall, you have to think back to last week. Last week, we talked about the movie 300, right? Gerard Butler talked about 300, right? And King Xerxes was going up against the Spartans. Okay, now this is five years ahead. So that didn't go so well. Gerard Butler was a greater opponent than what Xerxes had thought, okay? And it cost him a lot of money. So Xerxes came back to Persia in need of money. And so Haman says, hey, look, if we kill all of them, then we plunder all their money, you know? And then, you know, it's a quick quick fix. So let's kill all these people and let's take their money. And Xerxes is like, oh, that's a great idea. Okay, let's do it. So he's totally manipulating everything here. So, so he casts lots. He rolls dice. He rolls the dice. Haman rolls the dice, and it just so happens that the dice say the day to kill all the Jewish people living in this land is almost one year from now. And it just so happens that a royal edict goes out, and it goes out the day before. It just so happens to go out the day before Passover the day before Passover, when all the Jewish people will be celebrating the fact that they were freed from slavery in Egypt. It's a huge celebration day. So the day before Passover, they find out, actually, we're all going to be killed in almost a year from now. It just so happens that all of that comes into play at the same time. And then we see Haman and the king sitting down to feast, and we see Mordecai over here sitting down to mourn. He's fasting. He's in sackcloth. He's in ashes. Tremendous grief is on his head. Tremendous grief is on his head. Esther hears about this. She hears because she doesn't know about the royal edict yet. She has no idea about it, but it seems that her cousin Mordecai, he hears everything that's going on. He's heard about it. She hears that he's out there in sackcloth, and she wants to help him. She has the power to do something to help him. Let me send the guy some clothes. You know, he's ripped clothes and all that. What's going on? And so she sends somebody out there to talk to him because she can't go out herself. And so the person goes and says, hey, uh, you know, Esther wants to know, what's going on? Can I bring you some clothes? What's happened? Tells the whole story. And then says, you go back and tell Queen Esther this. It is time that she must go talk to the king to protect our people. She's got to go. So guy comes back, and uh, Esther says, well, I can't do that. Go back and tell him. There's no way. I can't just walk. Nobody just walks in. The king hasn't called me for 30 days. Like, you're under the wrong impression, Mordecai. You think that somehow the king and I are tight, but the king has like a thousand wives. And if you look in Esther chapter 2, verse number 19, you will notice something very interesting in chapter 2, verse number 19, that after she became queen, he did another second round beauty contest. She's thinking, I don't know how, I mean, my relationship to the king, she said, is very delicate. So A, nobody gets to go to see the king. You just walk in to see the king. Okay, you're walked in without an appointment, kill him. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. It's good to be king, right? Just kill the person. You have to be called by an appointment. And then there's a second beauty contest. She's thinking it's very, it's very, very delicate. And so the word goes back, hey, man, she's not going to go. She doesn't think. And he's like, what are you kidding me? 
Esther, don't you see that you have been brought to the kingdom for, and then the famous words from Esther, for such a time as this? Isn't it obvious? She's like, no, it's not obvious at all. Anybody else reading the story, it's totally obvious. But her inside of the story, it's not obvious at all. Esther got to be in the palace the same way a turtle gets on top of a fence. Somebody put it there. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, everybody. Here's the thing. When it's you in the story, when you're Esther and you're up against tough odds, you don't see God's hand at work at all. You're like, oh, no, I don't. I don't. It's not obvious. It might be obvious to you. It's not obvious to me. I don't see God at work. People might see, oh, I see God at work in your life. Oh, you might see it, but I don't see it. Because a lot of times God works in such subtle ways that we dismiss God working in our life when he's not anywhere to find. She's like, I'm not going to. No way. I'm not going. And so, man, he says, look. You must go. If you don't go, do you think that somehow you being Jewish is not going to be found out? They're going to come for you too. She says, well, now that you put it that way. (laughs) So she decides to go reluctantly, reluctantly. It's a very interesting verse in 2 Chronicles says this, the eyes of the Lord go around, the eyes of the Lord go around, looking in all the earth for people who are faithful to him so that he can make them strong. Now listen. She didn't go with great strength. She just took a little reluctant baby step in the right direction. And you know what, everybody? That's about all that God needs from us, to take a step in his direction, to pray and say, God, would you make me strong? I'm trying. It's hard. This is hard for her to do. Now, hopefully none of us will be put on the spot like she was. She was in a very tense situation. But we all face our own tense situations about doing the right thing and trusting God when we feel we're in such a dark, dark, dark place and we need God to turn things around. We need a divine reversal in our life so desperately for God to show up. If you just take a step in God's direction, you say, God, would you just give me strength? I know I'm not perfectly faithful, but would you help me to be strong, to do the right thing here, to do your thing here in this situation? Would you give me strength? And so she takes a very reluctant step in the right direction. I'll go see the king. She goes see the king. Here's what happens. She catches the king on a, on a good day. She just so happens to catch the king on a good day. He looks up, and there she's at the doorway, and he says, and this is the big moment. Is he going to say kill her or welcome her? Kill her? Well, she has no idea. She thinks she's getting ready to die. And he says, Esther, great to see you. What do you need? It just so happens she caught him on a great day. She says, King, if it so pleases the king, would you consider coming to a banquet I have prepared especially for you and for one other person, Haman? He's like, absolutely. Send for Haman right away. So they go out, they get Haman, vile, wicked Haman, who the king has no idea. He's vile and wicked at this point because he's being totally manipulated. And they get into the banquet and here's the big moment. Now she's getting ready to tell him, look, this, this wicked, vile Haman has manipulated you and he's going to kill me and he's going to kill all the Jewish people in the kingdom. And she gets right to that moment. And so the king says, all right, I've been waiting. I'm so excited. I just can't take it. I'm anticipating. What is it that you want? Tell me, Queen Esther. And then he says, because he's over the top with everything he says. He says, even up to half the kingdom, whatever you want. And she says, King, this is what I... And then she chickens out. She gets scared. She pauses. She hesitates. She says, would the king and Haman please come back tomorrow for another banquet? And I promise I'll tell you everything at that point. And isn't she just 
just, just so happens, just so happens to hesitate. What happens in that next 24 hours in between? I'll tell you what happens in that next 24 hours. A lot of stuff. Here's the thing to fill out if you like filling out on the back of the bulletin. God has, a, God has planned a divine reversal just for you. God has planned a divine reversal just for you. I'm going to read you what happens. It starts at the end of Esther chapter 5, and I'll read through the beginning of chapter 6. Haman went out from that day from the big banquet, the first banquet. He went out that day. He was in high spirits. Of course he was. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. It's never enough. Nevertheless, Haman, he restrained himself. He went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. That's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all of this, all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits. That's 75 feet. That's extraordinarily high. You would never, you would never kill somebody on a pole that high, right? 50 cubits high. And ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled. Oh, gosh. Impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman. So he had the pole set up. Like that night, the pole goes up. And then that night, we're told, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of Chronicles, a very boring book. He ordered a boring book to be read to him, the record of his reign to be brought in and read. It was found recorded there that Mordecai, of all nights, it just so happened on this night. It was The guy happened to just open up, open up any page. All right, I'll open up this page. And it was found recorded there of all the pages you could turn to that Mordecai had exposed Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. <gasps> nothing. Are you serious? Nothing has been done for him. His attendants answered everything in the book pivots right here. Vile, wicked Haman had the upper hand in all of his arrogance. And at this point here, everything flips. And now Mordecai has the upper hand. Over here, Haman had a blank check. He had the ring. He had the robe. He had everything. And over here, you'll see all of a sudden at this moment right here that Mordecai, Righteous, humble Mordecai now has the upper hand, the blank check, the ring, the robe, the power, everything. Everything flips right here. So the king says, what's been done for this person? Because it would be culturally really, really a bad thing for the king not to recognize somebody who had exposed an assassination plot, and they say nothing. He's like, oh, my gosh, we've got to do something about this right away. It's the middle of the night. But Haman is so anxious to execute, to execute Mordecai, he shows up at the king's palace in the middle of the night. And the king says, is anybody in the court? And the guy says, actually, Haman has just walked in. Haman's just walked in. He says, go bring him in. So he comes in, and the king says, Haman, listen, I, here's the deal. What would you do? 
if you wanted to really honor somebody, like honor them greatly, what would you do? And he didn't say the name of the person. And so Haman thought, well, who else does he have to honor but me? Because pride blinds you against everybody else, right? Who else, could, who else could there be to honor but me? He says, this is what I'd do. I'd put the ring on there, the royal ring on their finger, the royal robes on them. I'd put them on the royal horse. I'd march them through the whole city of Susa and have somebody crying out the whole time, here's what happens to the person the king delights to honor. This is it. And so the king says, awesome suggestion. Go find Mordecai. Put the robe on him, put the ring on him, put him up on the horse, and I want you to take him through the city and tell everybody this is what the king does. The person, he, and he said, are you serious? And all of a sudden, everything flips. So you see Mordecai, he's in grief, ripped, just mourning, sackcloth and ashes, and he goes from that. Haman walks in talking about executing Mordecai. He walks out of the room. Everything is reversed. And he's told you have to go and exalt Mordecai in front of the entire city. It is absolutely amazing. So Haman does it. I have a choice. He goes and he does it. And when he's done, right, and he leaves Mordecai, and Mordecai gets off the horse, and we're told that Mordecai goes back and takes his place, Haman runs home to his wife. And his wife, who he had just told before the pivot point, I have victory over my enemy, Mordecai. He had just told his wife that. I have victory. I prevailed. He actually says, I have prevailed over him. The pivot point happens. He goes home, and his wife says to him, there's nothing you can do to prevail over him now. He has victory over you. You better run. And at that moment when he's trying to think, oh my gosh, he's a rich guy. He's a prime minister. He's got lots of, lot of things at his disposal. It happened. When God starts working, things start happening like that. You can't keep up. It's too fast. God is too fast. You think God is really slow. And then all of a sudden God's super fast. He's like, okay, I'm going to run. And then here comes all the kings of ten say, hey, we're taking you to the second banquet. Let's go. And he's like, ha ha ha. And they grab him and they go. They walk into the banquet and there's the king, right? And there's Queen Esther. And the king's like, okay, now we're all here. We're all here, Esther. I don't, king doesn't like to be kept waiting, okay? King, like, what is it? What is it that you want? And she says, king, I beg of you, save my life. My life is in danger. I'm going to be killed. Now, look, the king is powerful and the king is arrogant like nobody's business. He says, What? Who would, who would dare threaten my wife's life? Nobody. You know a man like that? Anybody know any men like that? Who would, who would dare have the audacity? I'll, I, will, I will kill them so bad. And she says, this vile Haman. And his mind just snaps. It just blows. He is so mad. He's realized everything's clicked. He's like, this guy's been manipulating me all the time. This terrible person. He is so distraught. He walks out of the room and walks out onto the balcony. Now, in that culture, in that culture, when the king walks out of the room and his wife, the queen, is in the room, all men should flee unless you're a eunuch. All men are supposed to flee. That's culture. That's the way culture works. He leaves. Haman doesn't leave. Haman goes over. Esther is on a couch reclining. And Haman comes over to Esther on the couch crying, throws himself on her and begins to beg for his life. And just so happens at that moment, King walks back in. He's like, oh my gosh, no, you're not right here in my house. You're assaulting my wife. You're trying to molest my wife. Are you crazy? And one of the young says, hey, you know what? We noticed there's a 75 foot pole out <laughs> Haman's yard. We think it'd be a good idea if you just go ahead and plant him on that thing. King says, great idea, take him. 
and everything flips. All of a sudden, Mordecai, who was in grief, Haman has the total upper hand to everything. Ring, robe, power, authority, money, blank check. Do anything you want, Haman. All of a sudden, at the pivot point, at the pivot point, everything changes. And the king says, Mordecai, you got the ring. You got the robe. You, you can feast with me now. I'm giving you a blank check. I'm making you prime minister. I'm giving you Haman's estate. Everything turns. Aren't you fascinated? Maybe, I hope you're fascinated. Like me. What is the pivot point? What happened? that make this thing, because it pivots in one moment on one verse. Esther, chapter 6, verse number 1. Do you know what it says? The king could not sleep. Now, if you're like me, you're saying, wait a minute, time out, time out. That'd make a bit of sense. When I'm looking for a pivot point in my life, I'm looking for something fantastic. I'm looking for, like, fire. I'm looking for... Boom! But something as mundane and as ordinary as the king can't sleep, do I need to start praying for insomnia in my life so I can have more pivots take place? I mean, come on. What is that? It is so, so ordinary. Everything just flips around. This, um, this, um, well, this has actually been going on for weeks. My phone hasn't been working right. I've been trying to charge this thing, and it won't charge. And I learned that if I put it in, and I like turned the cord in the phone, maybe some of your experience, like in certain ways it would charge, but then I had to like, you know what I'm saying? Like leave it, like set up in a certain way, like at different angles, you know what I'm saying? The cord is hanging, and I just thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to, I don't want to get a new phone. I mean, first of all, it costs you money, and then they say it takes a couple minutes. Nothing takes a couple minutes. It's like a whole day to switch phones. I'm just dreading. I'm like, oh, Lord, I don't want to go. So I go to AT&T. I'm like, they say, oh, yeah, let me try it. Maybe you're just using the wrong cord. Yeah, right. I've just been using the wrong cord for two years. Okay. (laughs) Plug it in. Yep, yep, doesn't work. Okay. Take it down to the store called You Break It. That, that, okay. So I took it down. The guy all these, he put all these cords in. He says, okay, let me see. And I'm thinking they're going to, it's some bit, he's going to tell me you got to get a new phone. This thing isn't working. He says, let me get something. He walks to the back, comes back out. He brings back a pair of little simple tweezers. And he starts digging in that little, you know, that little hole there. And he starts pulling out little pocket lint. Pocket lint. I'm like, oh my gosh, that mud lint's in there. Just pulling it out. Plugs it back in, works like a charm. Something simple. It was lint. Lint is the pivot point for my phone was lint. <laughs> Everything for my phone. I, my phone was on the chopping block. It was over. And my phone had a divine reversal. Okay? <laughs> That's what happened. God is working in subtle ways. God is working even when it appears God's not working. God is working in your life. How is God working in your life? Do you see God working in your life right now? Do you see God at work in your life right now? Because God is at work in subtle ways. God is working through whispers. I've been reading a book. It's called Homo Deus by Noah Harari. Now, some of you might want to read that. I'm fascinated by it. But others, you might read the book and say, oh, my gosh, what the world are you reading, Pastor John? I'm not telling you I subscribe to everything in the book. I'm just telling you it's a fascinating book to me. Fascinating. The guy is a historian. His first book was Homo Sapiens. Second book is Homo Deus, Man God. Man God, Right? It is such a fascinating reading. Here's what he says. This entire planet right now, think about this, everybody. This entire planet is pivoting right now. Everything on this planet is pivoting. This is the one time in history, and you get to live in it. All the people that have gone on before you, and you get to experience the pivot on this planet. There are things happening on this planet that have never, ever, ever, ever happened before. He says, for the history of humanity, we have fought a battle against three things. Three things. War, famine, and plague. War. 
famine and plague. Huge amounts of war, huge amount of famine wiping out to, and, and people starving, right? Huge. This is big. And he says, for the first time ever, we are pivoting. We have overcome war, famine, and plague. Consider this. Consider this for just a moment about what has happened in our world. Okay, for the first time in history, more people will die of old age than infectious disease. Never before. It's pivoting right now. The whole world is changing right before your eyes for the first time in history. For the first time in history, more people will die at their own hands by committing suicide than by violence. So if you take all the people that will die from war this year, all the people that will die from violent crime or terrorism, combine them all together, more people will die at their own hands by suicide than by violence. It's a major shift point. So violence has been controlled, statistically speaking, right? Infectious disease, is it still out there? Yes, but it's been rapidly reduced, okay? And how about from eating? More people will die this year from overeating than undereating. More people will die this year from overeating under. This has never happened before. Our entire planet is pivoting right now. We have overcome this. McDonald's and Wendy's pose a greater threat to you, pose a greater threat to you, right, than, than dying some violent crime. He says, our entire planet is actually pivoting, and it's because we have overcome through human ingenuity. It's fascinating. He says, going on from here, there's some, there's, there's some interesting things that we're looking at. He says, the ne- our next step is we wanna, we're going to want to be like God. Now, you know, there's some really serious people out there, serious people, serious people they are talking about immortality now. The co-founder of PayPal says he fully expects to live forever. People are saying, serious people, Google gives 36% of their portfolio to studying life sciences, to living forever. There are people who believe by the time 2050 rolls around that if you have a healthy body and a healthy bank account, you have a shot at immortality. And we will upgrade people and we'll put chips in people's brain and artificial intelligence is taking over. And most of the world doesn't even know what's going on except for the Googles and the Teslas of the world that are on the cutting edge of all this because the rest of us are just trying to pay our bills. Now, he says something in here which I found extremely fascinating. He says, for all these thousands of years, war, famine, plague, that has just wrecked people and wrecked lives and all kinds of terrible, cruel, terrible, terrible, cruel things that have happened, genocide, all the hateful, mean things, that people have prayed, 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 God, please show up. Please show up and stop this war, stop this famine, stop this plague. They've prayed to God. They've prayed to every deity possible. They've prayed to angels. They've prayed to anything and everything. And this is what he says. This is what he says. God never showed up. Human beings, by their own, by their own ingenuity, have figured this out, and we have Overcome. Isn't it interesting how two people can look at something and see something completely different? Mordecai looked at Esther's situation and said, Oh my gosh, isn't it obvious that God has put you in the palace the same way the turtle got on top of the fence? And Esther looks at it and says, I'm in the palace because I'm beautiful. I'm in the palace because I want a contest. That's why I'm in the palace. And so, no, I'm not going to go talk to the king. Isn't it amazing how two people can look at something? I look at that situation and say, God heard billions and billions and billions of prayers for thousands and thousands of years. And eventually, with the help of God, right, with the brains that God gave us, eventually we got war, famine, and plague under control. But when we don't see God at work in the subtle ways, we dismiss God and we give the credit to ourselves. Just like Esther. Is God working in your life? Do you see God at work in life? Or are you winning the contest because of your own greatness, power? God works in whispers. 
whispers. It was a fantastic couple that came to Grace for a long time. I knew them, I knew them really well. Um, the wife, and they might be watching now, they live in South Korea right now, uh, she was taken away from her birth mom, uh, very young, and she always wanted to know who her birth mom was, always. Very smart couple, good jobs, super smart couple. He went to TJ, not this TJ, the TJ High School out in Fairfax, number one high school in America for a long time, very smart guy, and then from there to Harvard. Uh, she wanted to know, so they researched, and they did, all, they did everything they could do. They did everything they could do, research, and finally one day they said, you know what, we're going to have to go. We're going to have to leave our jobs, take our kids, pull them out of school, and we're going to have to move to South Korea. So they did it. They made the big move. They got there. They hit the ground running. They're after it. They're going to find the birth mom. They're going to find it. They knocked on every door. They did everything they noted. They hit every connection they had. They did everything, and finally one day they realized this is it. Every door smashed in their face. God, they prayed, they prayed, they prayed. I really want police. And they felt like God told them. They felt like God impressed them. They felt like God whispered to them, go, go. So they went. And yet everything turned south on them. Every door was smashed in their face. And finally, after one meeting, it was like, you're never going to know this because in South Korea, we don't give that information out. You will never know your birth mom. Just deal with it. They're driving down the street after one of those meetings, and they're like, they're just finally letting it go. Okay, it's over. And they're feeling really low. They drive down the street. Jimmy, the husband, he sees a sign, Philly cheesesteaks. He's like, I love Philly cheesesteaks. And I'm really feeling like a Philly cheesesteak right now. So he whips the car around, does a U-turn, pulls in, they go in, they get their Philly cheesesteak, and there they are eating away. And there's a lady sitting next to them, and they just strike up a conversation. And one thing turns to another, and the birth mother comes up, and she's like, I might be able to help you. I think it was within 24 hours she was on the phone to her birth mother. It was within like three days. Her and her birth mother were in the same room. What did it? A Philly cheesesteak. Philly cheesesteak. Everybody, God is working in powerful and subtle ways. You know what Jesus' favorite miracle was in the entire Bible? His favorite. The miracle he did more than anything else, he opened eyes. He opened eyes. One person can look at a situation and say, you know what, Esther, you're there because you are just drop-dead gorgeous. That's how you got there. Another person can look at the situation and say, you're there because God placed you there like a turtle on top of a fence. Which one is it? Which one is it? And how is God working in your life? I want to encourage you today. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the last fill in the blank. Enter a covenant with God through Jesus the Christ. Why is that important? Enter a covenant with God through Jesus the Christ. I'm going to tell you why this is so incredibly important. Because God says when we're in a covenant with him, no matter how dark it is, he will always come for us. No matter how much darkness you're in, he's always coming with the light. No matter how bad things are, he will pivot your life. He will turn it upside down. When you're in a really low place, he will come and find you. When you've been unfaithful to him and you're in a low place, he will still come and find you. It doesn't matter because covenants are based on love. There's a lot of lawyers in this city. And all of us enter into contracts all the time. So we're very familiar with contracts. A contract and a covenant are very similar, but in the same way, they're very, very opposite. A contract is based on fear. It's how I'm, I get in a contract with you so that I'm protected because you might do something crazy, right? Lawyers, give me a nod of a head. Yes, we get in, we get in a contract. So we're going to protect me. Covenants, covenants are all based on love. 
A contract is conditional. A covenant is unconditional. No matter what you do, I will, I will be there. A contract is about what you're going to give. A, covenant is, a, a, a contract is about what you're going to get. A covenant is about what you're going to give. The closest thing we have to a covenant today is a marriage covenant. In a covenant in the Bible, there was, there was an aisle you would walk down. You'd walk down this aisle, right, in between, right, these two halves, right? You walk down this aisle, and there's rings, and there's robes, and there's vows that you would make till death do us part. Do you all this? And there was this exchange of names. So Abraham became Abraham because he got a piece of God's name, Yahweh, Abraham. Sarai became Sarah, so they exchanged it. So you wonder today, you go to, you go to, you go, you go to a wedding today, it's like, well, what is this old-fashioned thing we do exchanging names? It comes all the way from the Bible, comes all the way from the covenant because we exchange it. And then at the end, how about the thing with the cake that we always like and people, some people smash it. Just, in my wedding, my wife said, told me the day before, said, you smash that in my face. Boy, you're going to have a big problem, okay? <laughs> And when she said it, I knew she was serious. So there was no smashing. But sometimes people do the smashing, but we feed each other. What is that thing you do with that? And you feed it. Hey, 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 hey. That's covenant. That's what you did in the covenant. That's what you did in the Bible. A Bible covenant. You fed each other. That's what you did. Right? There's rings and there's robes. And here's the thing. Here's the thing about marriage, everybody. If you ask somebody, are you married? Are you married? It's not like the person says, I don't know. <laughs> I Maybe I am. I'm not sure. Like you wake up in Vegas somewhere. It's like, who are you? What? Oh, man, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have got that hammered last night, right? No, do you know when you're married? You know you have gotten married. And sometimes people say, have you entered a covenant with God? You're like, oh, I've been in church all my life, I guess. I guess. I don't know. I've been in church my whole life. Maybe. I think I believe. I try to believe. Oh, no, 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 no. When you're married, you know you're married. And if you're not, you've got a real big issue. Okay? But when you're, you know it. You know it. And when you've entered a covenant with God, you know it. You know it. God, I'm in with you. I'm not perfect, but I'm in. I'm placing my trust in you. Till death do us part, I'm placing my trust. I'm not perfect. I will fail. And thank goodness your love is unconditional. Here's how I want to end. Here's the thing. Here's why I'm stressing this, to enter a covenant with God, because God says when you're in a covenant, the reason, the reason everything reverses in Esther is because those people were in a covenant with God, and God says no matter what you do or how far you stray, how bad you wander, I will always come for you, and I will bring light to your darkness, and we need a part of that. We want that in our life. We want God to flip things upside down in our lives and in our marriages and in our homes and in our family and in our work and in our money. And all of those things, we need God in our health. We need God to come in riding on a horse and bring light in the midst, in the midst of darkness. And I know there's a bunch of us in this room and those who are watching online right now, you're facing something right now. You need, you need things to pivot. You need things to pivot. And I have felt for months that we were coming to this moment in Esther that God wants to give you strength and God wants to pivot things for you. I want to encourage you, if you've never entered a covenant relationship with God, make sure you do that today. Make sure you do that. You can prayer wall. You can click the button on Grace Live. You can sit in your own seat right now when I pray in the end. But whatever you do, please enter the covenant because he is coming for you when you're in a covenant with him. There's no greater move that you could possibly make than enter a covenant with God through Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, God, that we have hope. This room is filled. Those watching online, the world is filled. We are surrounded with people. God, we need a pivot. 
We need a divine reversal. There are marriages in bad shape. There are relationships in bad shape. Many of us feel really bad about ourselves. We're feeling hopeless and depressed. There's careers. The list goes on and on. Almighty God, help us to find the strength. May we enter a covenant with you and trust in you that one day, one day, one day, you will cause everything to turn right side up to the honor and glory of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Amen.